How are we doing? Are we all awake? Just about. That's good. Okay. So the book of James, chapter 2, contains, I think, uh, four, uh, four of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Simply this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The slides are working. That's a good sign. Uh, and nowhere, <clears throat> nowhere is that reality felt, known, um, experienced, uh, and lived out more than in the act of forgiveness. Uh, the, the horizontal forgiveness, if you like, among, among us folk, among human beings, but also the vertical forgiveness from God extended towards us. Today's the first Sunday of Lent, uh, and throughout Lent we're going to be looking at um, Jesus' words from the cross. And given this gospel reading today, it probably won't surprise you, we're going to be talking about forgiveness and this um, intercession on the behalf of the whole world. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, I've stood here before and spoken about forgiveness in this place, um, just the kind of critical nature of forgiveness and forgiving as part of walking the walk of Jesus and walking the way of Jesus. Uh, that kind of horizontal aspect of, of me to you and you to me and us to each other, that we are called to be a forgiving people. But today I want to think a bit more about God's forgiveness of us about his forgiving of us. I mean, why? Why did God choose to forgive us anyway? Why did he choose to be merciful rather than not merciful in the first place? And for this, we need to kind of understand a couple of things, I think. One is the nature of God. So look at, look at God's understanding of himself, really. Um, but then also how God views us. How does God think about us? How does God see us, particularly when we rebel and are unfaithful to him? So first, let's take a look at the nature of God according to God. Now, there's lots of descriptions of the qualities of God in Scripture, but relatively few places where God um, overtly describes what he is like for himself. Okay, and so this is uh, uh, why this particular scripture I'm going to come to now, Exodus 34, 6 to 7, is such an, it's sort of a significant scripture. Um, if you've got a, a Bible or a phone, feel free to look at that now. So it's Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Um, does somebody want to read it out? Has someone got a phone with them? So it's not all me. Has anyone got, a, does anyone want to be brave? Maybe, maybe, yes, no, maybe. I'm reaching for the microphone. I'm walking in that direction. Does someone want to read it out? Oh, someone's pointing at someone. Who are you pointing at? David. David, you've been, you've been pointed at. <laughs> in a good way or in a bad way? Okay. Are you, are you happy to read? Is that all right? So just, yeah, I thought rather than me waffling on. I'll read from the screen, shall I? Oh, yeah, go for it. Oh, that's supposed to be the Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and. I thought, yeah, that's what my Bible says. <laughs> Go for it. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, 
Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Amazing. Thank you. That was great. So this um, context is really important, isn't it, Um, with all scripture. In this moment in our scriptures, what's going on is um, God has liberated his people from the oppression of Pharaoh. They've been rescued from under the boot of Pharaoh, and they're now um, living at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Moses has already been up to the mountain once to receive the law from God, and let's just say that didn't go very well. Um, People remember that story. So Moses goes up the mountain. He receives the law from God on the tablets. He comes down and he finds the people of Israel worshipping a golden calf made from their own like melted jewellery. Um, they start worshipping this, this calf and um, Moses, bereft, beside himself, frustrated, throws the tablets down. They break uh, on the floor. And so he has to do it all over again. So he goes back up the mountain, um, this time carrying blank tablets to be, the first ones were given to him, the second ones he took with him to be engraved by God. And um, he, he uh, has this encounter with God. And as he meets with God, this is what the Lord says. The Lord, the Lord. That's the name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh. The compassionate and gracious God. Remember, God is saying this about himself the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, at first, it's not particularly clear in many translations, including this one, but where it says maintaining love to thousands, it doesn't mean maintaining love to thousands of people. It means maintaining love to thousands of generations. He's maintaining love to thousands of generations. And so sometimes we think of God as being, you know, he's, got the God of, he's the God of justice, he's the God of mercy. But it says that his, his punishment, his consequence, his justice, his judgment ex- may extend to two or three or four generations, but his love extends to a thousand generations. How wonderful is that to hear? So you might say that whilst there is judgment and justice in the character of God, mercy is this higher quality, so triumphs over judgment. The Bible is so amazing, and it speaks to us in myriad ways. God gives us literal words, but through his word, he also speaks to us in pictures and imagery, things to help us understand in a different way. And to show you what I mean, we're going to flick through to Romans. So if you again have got a Bible, feel free to flick to Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, where Paul, talking about how we're made right with God, or to use theological language, how we're justified in God's sight, he says these incredible words. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's God's judgment, his fair assessment of our guilt as we stand before him. Uh, And all are justified freely by his grace. That's God's decision to offer mercy to everyone. Through the redemption 
that came by Jesus Christ. Jesus being the means of this mercy. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, if any of you have got a paper Bible with you, does anyone have a paper Bible? Give us a wave. I'm not going to make you read anything out. But have you got a paper Bible with you? Can you just for a minute, does it say in your Bible, there's this little footnote in mine. You can see it on the thing. See the little A, little footnote, a sacrifice of atonement. Can you, does it say anything by yours, by that footnote, anyone? Okay, reference to Psalm 51, okay. In my Bible. Okay, brilliant, yes. So there is something here that is quite interesting, so I thought I would kind of bring it out. It's always useful to like look at these little, little uh, footnotes. So where it says this line, sacrifice of atonement, where you've got this little footnote, in my Bible, it says that the Greek word used here is hilasterion, which refers to what's known as the atonement cover, which is the Leviticus bit, on the Ark of the, on the, Ark of the, the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was um, the most kind of holy, the most precious artifact in, um, in the worship of the people of Israel. And... Um, What Paul's trying to say here is that God, in some way, presented Christ as something comparable to the atonement cover, which is the lid of this Ark of the Covenant, sometimes called the mercy seat, which is the lid on this Ark. What on earth is all this about? How is Jesus comparable to the lid on this strange box? Well, the Ark of the Covenant, as I said, at the time of Exodus and into Judges and beyond, was the the epicenter of the life of worship of the people of Israel. It was their holiest artifact, and it went with them wherever they traveled. They carried it around with them, and whenever they stopped, they set up the tabernacle, which was like their kind of mobile temple. They'd set up the tabernacle, they'd set up the the Ark of the Covenant in it, Um, and, and it was the equivalent of the most holy place in the temple when the temple was built later on. So it was the most sacred part of the tabernacle. And um, the most sacred part on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, this atonement cover, the the lid of it. Because where these angels' wingtips were, in that place, hovering above it, that's where the people of Israel believed the presence of God was most profoundly present. It was, it was like the holiest of holies in the very definition of the word. And so um, this is where things get really, really interesting. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would um, sprinkle the blood of a bull and of a goat uh, on the mercy seat. So blood would be sprinkled on this golden lid to atone for the sins and failures of the people of Israel, which were many, and the animal's blood would be shed instead of theirs. Okay, sound familiar? You can hear Jesus' references already. Um, as a side note, this is fascinating. So on the Day of Atonement, there'd be a bull that would be killed, and the blood would be flicked and splattered and scattered on this thing. There'd be the blood of a goat that would be flicked and splattered all over it as well. But then there'd be another goat as well. Side note, but this is fascinating. There'd be another goat, um, and the high priest would lay his hands on the goat on behalf of the people, 
uh, symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto the goat, and the goat would be, be kind of ushered out of the camp. Okay? It would be, be, be basically told to flee. It was a scapegoat. Okay? That's where the phrase scapegoat comes, comes from. So when you have a scapegoat, it's about putting the blame, finding the blame for someone, right? Finding the blame for something and placing it with somebody so that you can get, our, so you can get off the hook, basically. So that's where we get our phrase scapegoat from. But it escaped with the sins of the people and took away the sins. So that's what would happen. He placed his hands on it on behalf of the people and the sins would flee away. There's a scapegoat. That's just an interesting fact. But going back to the Ark of the Covenant, and here's where it really hits home. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? Can anybody remember? Points win prizes. Simon Cooper at the back. Sorry? Yep. Really? Simon disagrees. It, what, I, I would say, what, where did you get that from? Only the stone tablets. Okay, what, what else might have been? It, I, think, I think it was. Aaron's staff and manor apparently were. So um, are, are you referring to, so where, where have you got that from, Simon? But what about the manor and the, the staff? Okay. Okay, interesting. Okay, I mean, the Talmud would actually say something different, apparently, so I looked it up. But that's kind of tradition and commentary on the scriptures rather than scriptures. I think it's, I think it's quite common in Jewish belief to believe that inside the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff. And again, put, read this up for yourself, okay? Um, Aaron's staff, manna. We have no idea whether that's what manna looks like. That's an interesting guess. Um, uh, and then the stone tablets with the law on. And interestingly, if this is, if this is true, now you've, you've put me on my back foot some, but if this is true, if this is right, and as I said, I think some of this is kind of Jewish tradition as opposed to necessarily scripture, um, it in some way represents the failures and the sins of the people. The idolatry of the golden calf is represented by the broken law of God. Um, the, crumble, the grumbling in the desert uh, due to the lack of food represented in some way by the manna and complaining about God's chosen leaders and their authority represented by Aaron's budding staff. So what we have in Romans 3 is Paul saying, you know what Jesus did? He did what the mercy seat did, but in an even more incredible once-for-all kind of way. And the good news for Jesus, for us all today, I think, is this. He sees your sins. He sees my sins. He sees our mess, our rebellion, uh, just as clearly as he looks in that box and sees at least, at least the, 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 the Ten Commandments and that reminder of their unfaithfulness and the brokenness of the people's promises. He sees our sin as plain as day. And he's God, so he won't just ignore it. And he may make you feel the consequences of your actions for a season. It may be a generation. It may be a couple of generations. But his love and forgiveness extends to a thousand generations 
Ultimately, his mercy triumphs over judgment because the spotless sacrifice has been offered for us. There is the mess there, but it's been covered. There is the judgment that we're guilty there, but his mercy is of a higher order. This is where God's justice and mercy meet. God is fair. As I said, he won't let guilty go unpunished, but he loves us so much that he'd rather take the punishment instead so that we don't have to. What an amazing God. So why then does God forgive? Why? Simply because he can't help himself. It's who God is. He is completely hardwired to be merciful, to offer mercy and extend mercy to us. But the question that sometimes troubles me is how does he then see us in all of this? How does he see us in our mess and brokenness? I mean, is it that he's forgiving, but he kind of views us as this inconvenient reality in his world? You know, it, does, he, does he look at us and go, oh, you know, there are these people and they're just, they're just such a mess. And he's just desperately trying, to lo- trying not to lose his temper with us all the time. Is that the way that God sees us and views us? Well, some more good news, I think. Categorically, the answer is a resounding no. Jesus' words in our reading today are um, telling. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, because they don't know actually what they're doing. Part of the reason that Jesus can advocate for us is that when it comes to sin, we really don't know what we're doing. When the Roman soldiers were nailing Jesus to the cross, there is a genuine reality that they had absolutely no idea who they were dealing with. They didn't know that Jesus was the unique son of God. He was just the next in line of another, um, uh, of a line of possible kind of insurrectionists and troublemakers that are going to be a headache for Rome. They were just kind of doing their job Just another day, just another execution in the Roman conveyor belt of death. So there's an ignorance about us, about humans, that Jesus takes into account. But I reckon among the religious leaders, there would have been some who kind of did know what they were doing. I think they did know that he was the Messiah. And yet they killed him anyway. But even then... Did they really know what they were doing? Did they know what they were doing? As in, they may have known who they were crucifying, and they may have known that they were acting with evil intent. But even then, they and we can't possibly understand sin and its ramifications from God's perspective. The sheer devastating ugliness is viewed from the place of perfection. You know, whenever we see something that is wrong in our world, we look at it and we go, oh, but we're viewing it as people who are broken already, aren't we? We view it as people, there's like a relativity about it, as in we, we see brokenness, but we are broken. How must that look from God's perspective of holiness, where he's viewing it from perfection? We can only imagine how much Worse, quite frankly, some of that selfishness and greed and everything else looks to him. Someone once said to me, you know, Andy, I reckon that we're probably a lot worse than we think we are morally. But God is probably far better than we think he is. 
And I agree with this. You know, God knows that we're fallen beings. He, you know, that we're um, completely unable to see things how he does. And the good news for us today is that he knows this. He knows. And because of this, there is compassion for us. Jesus has got compassion for your failings. As I was preparing for this and praying, I became kind of increasingly convicted that from God's perspective, we're viewed less like some kind of evil militia uh, person who's roaming around with a gun and more like a child who's stumbled upon his kind of evil father, evil uncle's um, gun cabinet. You know, it's like there's a, there's a kind of, yes, there's danger, and yes, there's bad stuff that's happening, but actually where we're at is that we're like, we're like kids playing with guns. We really don't know what we're doing. Now, the challenge for us in this is to acknowledge the seeming paradox of the fact that on the one hand, we really can't possibly know the extent of our fallenness and brokenness and the harm that our sin causes, and yet we do still know what we're doing when we do something wrong. We do know that we're doing something wrong and we're still held accountable for our actions. So we know exactly what we're doing and yet, paradoxically, we really don't know what we're doing. Do you get that? Is this kind of making sense? It's like we know that we're doing something wrong but we can't possibly see the gravity of it, the weight of it from the perspective of God. So even when we know what we're doing, we really don't know what we're doing and that's where the mercy of Christ comes from. Father, forgive. They don't know what they're doing. They knew what they were doing, but they did not know what they were doing. To wrap up, at the start then of this season of Lent, which is an inherently more kind of introspective, inward-looking, um, reflective season where we look at ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirror honestly, what can, how can we respond to this, to Jesus' first word to us from the cross? Well, I think firstly, simply to celebrate who God says he is, who he says he is, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who God says he is. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that really good? You know, if ever you get a kind of a... Uh, a creeping sense of God being just a, a cruel God, burning ants with a magnifying glass. You know, this is who he says he is. He's compassionate. He's compassionate. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. This is amazing news. Secondly, let's not make excuses before God when we sin. Because we do know what we're doing. Owning our mess, owning our brokenness is the first step towards transformation. And then thirdly, and finally, to praise Jesus for the fact that his natural response is to deal with us gently. It's to deal with us gently because although when we stray, we know exactly what we're doing. God knows that we have no idea what we're doing. Amen.